Hi, I'm Chris McLean from Stonechair Capital. Earlier, I had the opportunity to sit down with Robert Van Beers of RVB Capital and hear how 30 years of energy experience on two continents has led him to have a pipeline of projects that is the envy of developers. Let's dive into that discussion with Robert Van Beers and learn more about energy and Africa. Thanks for joining us today, and again, in another edition of this uh, uh, podcast. And, and I'm really um, quite intrigued by the discussion that I'm about to have here with an uh, individual that has all kinds of experiences in Africa and experiences in the energy sector on multiple continents. Uh, the gentleman's name here is Robert Van Beers. And Robert, please, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and your company. Yeah, thanks very much, Chris, and, and thank you for inviting me to join you in this uh, discussion. Um, so, Chris, I think you've got it right. I've been involved in Africa now for about 40 odd years. I went over there as a, as a young guy, finished my high school, and then got involved in rural development projects. Uh, started an infrastructure fund that built clinics and classrooms and water supply systems and roads and bridges in rural communities in South Africa. And uh, that fund is actually still working today. And it's been working in villages for, as I say, nearly 40 years now. Um, and I've been in and out of Africa for, a, for most of the time intervening, uh, sometimes as an advisor. So I've worked on countless power projects uh, as, a, as an economist and a finance advisor. And um, I ran a large uh, engineering company across all of Africa, uh, running their energy group from, um, from Cape Town to Cairo. And uh, now we, um, uh, my, a group of um, like-minded individuals and I have put together a company that's developing renewable energy projects in sub-Saharan Africa. So we have a number of projects on the go uh, right now. So your, 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 your journey's definitely taken you um, in one way, as I explain it to many people, across the spectrum of, of energy. What energy was 20 years ago is not what energy is today. And, and you're a living example of that change that's happening. When you were in the North American continent, you had experience with a public company, I believe. Talk me through that growth strategy and how you want to apply it perhaps to your future growth strategies. Uh, that's actually kind of an interesting question, uh, Chris. So yeah, I was uh, one of the founders of a company called Tunbridge Power. Um, uh, I had been in the uh, transmission business as an advisor for about a decade or so, and then with some partners started Tunbridge. And we um, make a long story short, we ultimately developed a 340 kilometer transmission line that connected Alberta to Montana. And um, it's, to my knowledge, still the world's only cross-border private transmission line done entirely with uh, private capital and private initiative and private risk taking. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting project and it's, a, you know, the, the, the process of getting there, dealing with the regulatory issues and the technical issues and the financial issues and so forth are remarkably similar to the challenges in Africa. Um, Africa presents, of course, a, a, another layer of complexity in certain dimensions, but it's surprising uh, when I look and compare and contrast the experience in North America with that in Africa, 
just how profound the political risk is in this country too, whether it, it expresses itself perhaps somewhat differently. There isn't a lot of nimbyism to worry about in Africa, yeah. uh, but there certainly is here. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So, so project development remains uh, an uncertain endeavor and a, and a very difficult one consequently to finance. The, the, the experience that you've had from in, in the life cycle of project development. I mean, we often hear in Africa uh, about the need for, we'll call it local power and local power usage, and that how, say, DFIs need to be um, stepping up for transmission and, and helping governments deal with those kinds of issues. And here you are with experience in both of those camps, and you firmly understand that spectrum that has to happen with efficiency for energy to be used, you know, by all the different constituents. Where do you see in the different areas that you're currently working, and we'll get into the project soon enough, where do you see the greatest strength? Is that in transmission or is that in generation? Um, so my personal experience is, is probably strong, much stronger on the transmission side. Um, I'm not an engineer, I'm an economist by training, uh, but over the many years I've worked with transmission, I've really come to love the sector because if you understand just how complex transmission really is, most people think it's an extension cord that connects a power plant in a, in a load center like a city. Um, it's in fact a far more subtle network uh, and it has to be kept uh, synchronized and it has to be kept uh, in balance uh, in real time and it's interconnected with, with grids all across the continent. So it's a very, it's a very challenging thing to manage a transmission grid properly. Um, but if, if transmission doesn't operate properly, then consumers are forced to buy power from the plants that are near them. Uh, you know, a country like Nigeria is a good example. The vast majority of the installed capacity in Nigeria is not grid connected. And so consequently, power is hugely more expensive than it should be and much more environmentally destructive than it would otherwise be. So the transmission grid plays a very critical role in trying to help consumers get the most efficient, low price power, but also to achieve environmental objectives. So it's, um, it's really important that, that, that grids be well managed. And one of the challenges is that they're very capital intensive mm. and any grid asset tends to last virtually in perpetuity, but they're not cheap to build. And as, as we all know, governments struggle to raise that kind of capital or to back that kind of capital with sovereign guarantees. So increasingly all around the world, whether it's in Canada or it's in Kenya or in South Africa or in, or in Egypt, governments are having to lean on the private sector and come up with models within which the private sector can bring innovation and bring capital to transmission. And that's, that's tricky because it's been a sector that traditionally has been dominated exclusively by the government. You now have chosen to go into the generation side with some of your projects. Talk me through um, your journey, you know, to to generation from where you were. Well, it's, yeah, Chris. So, so I would almost say that's that's a a, a a push factor, right? I mean, if 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 there were great transmission opportunities for us, we'd probably be doing transmission projects. But there are very few regimes or very few countries and, and grid systems that are truly open to private investment at this moment. 
And the second reality is most of the projects that, that might be available are very large and we're not a company with a large balance sheet. So that pushed us towards generation where you can do a bite-sized project. Um, so yeah, we're doing a number of projects now, all of which will interconnect not at the transmission level, but in, within a distribution grid, mm. which is again, a little bit different. It's, it's less technically complicated because you're interconnecting at a much lower voltage. Um, it's more like you know connecting your driveway to a city street than connecting your driveway to uh, to a to a freeway. Uh, so right, there there are different models, and and connecting to a high voltage transmission line is technically and, and financially challenging. So we're doing we're doing bite sized projects, uh, looking for projects that have a lot of social benefit, and environmental benefit, and are economically solid. My understanding from our discussions is that you are definitely one of those individuals that has a deep pipeline of projects because of your experience on the continent, both continents, your, your experience in general, and, and your, we'll call it, need to mix it up, right? Nothing, nothing is static in your world right? So as a result, you're not afraid to pick up the phone. You'll make the smile and dial. You'll get on the plane. You'll see people. You'll get into projects. Talk to me about how you as a project developer see your project flow. What, what, where, where, do you, where do you get access to, to different ideas? Yeah, you know, it ought to be a complicated, challenging thing to put together a, a pipeline of projects. And, 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 I, and I'm very fortunate. In our case, it's not. But, but partly that's happenstance. It is, it is the result of decades of working in, in Africa. So, you know, for example, I've lived and worked extensively in West Africa, primarily in Ghana, but also in Liberia, as well as in Southern Africa, South Africa primarily, but also in Botswana and Namibia, in Zimbabwe. And... Um, you know, the, the benefit of that, Chris, is that, the, that we have a network of friends and colleagues, whether they're in the utilities or banking or they're lawyers or they're in construction companies or even, you know, they're journalists or politicians or, or, or bureaucrats. There's a network of people who are interested in what we're trying to do. They may be tangential to what we do, but, but they're aware of us. And so uh, we have the wonderful luxury of making the investment you just alluded to, where we get on a plane, we go, we go somewhere and we let you know, 15, 20 people know, hey, we're coming, we'd love to see you again. We'd love to renew our, our friendship and our relationship. We'd like to talk about what we're looking for. And as a consequence, there is almost literally a line of people coming to talk to us to say, I've got a great project idea. Can you mm -hmm. guys work with us to get this, that or the other done? So, you know, I was just recently in Harare there's a, there's a line of people coming to us with tremendous projects. Zimbabwe is a, a very challenging country right now because of its, its government, for one thing, uh, but also in the sanctions they face, but also the currency issues. So, mm -hmm. you know, getting, getting access to, to, to foreign currency is very, very challenging in Zimbabwe. But there's a lineup of people with great project ideas uh, looking for someone who's going to bring a creative idea uh, in terms of how they can get a project done and who's prepared to work collaboratively and on a equalitarian basis with a with a local partner. And that's that's what we want to do. 
Our, our objective is, of course, to build good power plants uh, and to do power plants that make economic sense and are financeable, et cetera, but just as much to achieve social ends. And that starts with leaving behind a partner who's much strengthened by the experience of working with us, who's cap quite capable of undertaking the next project without uh, without us. And mm. if we want to do something together, terrific, but, but we've left behind a partner with much deeper experience and confidence and a much broader network of, of resources with which they can do, you know, their, their, their second or third or fourth project. That, that's a, um, a very powerful statement. Um, the idea of um, a partner left behind that is stronger than when they called you, as it were. That's, that, that, that's impact at its uh, finest um, well, you know, Chris, you're, you're, the, you're probably a similar kind of guy. If, if on our walk through this life, we don't leave those behind us better off, what are we doing, right? So, I mean, it's just baked into how we look at things. We, we just ask ourselves, how, how can we find people of integrity, people of intelligence, people with energy and initiative? So we, we, we like them inherently, but they may not have any experience raising capital or they may not have experience negotiating uh, complicated engineering and procurement and construction contracts well we have that experience but let's do this jointly and let's bring them along um, and I'm and I'm pleased to say that the local partners we have I'd say almost without exception have become good friends and it's highly unlikely we would continue uh, to do projects without them we will bring them from the country where we first met them to the next and the, the, the next and the next because we've developed such a trusting and friendly relationship but in every case we'll look for truly local partners with the objective of leaving them behind much stronger than than we found them that same strategy is 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 echoed in your team, your team is spread across the continent as well with different skill sets in different geographies. Illuminate that for us a bit. Yeah, sure. So um, it, it somewhat reflects where we found projects and partners and our experience. So we operate out of a number of centers in, in Africa. And, and I don't want to give you the sense that we're a billion dollar company with, with gleaming office towers everywhere. We're mostly operating out of people's homes. Uh, we do have a number of corporate locations, but we're operating right now out of Accra and we're operating out of Kampala. Um, we expect soon to have an office in, in Malabo, that's Equatorial Guinea. We've got a, a permanent presence in Harare, um, one in Cape Town and one in Port Louis, that's Mauritius. So we're incorporated in, in Mauritius and that's, uh, you know, we do, we do our banking and our bookkeeping and, and, and so forth and our corporate registration. Uh, in, in Mauritius, but we, yeah, we operate out of a number of other centers. And so we, we try to attract people to us who, who are like-minded and, and, and have something to contribute, but we're pretty ambivalent as to, to where they're located. So we, we don't expect everybody to be, you know, joining us in Johannesburg, for example. You're not taking the top floor of the stock exchange tower in Johannesburg and saying this is ours, and from here we will reside over Africa. <laughs> like, not, not yet, not yet, Chris. Well, all, you know, it, 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 it's the that spread of people. I think represents the depth of your projects as well to to weave these two things together. One of the yeah, projects that you 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 are are most keen about is in. Uh, Uganda, yeah. Why don't mm. you 
um, if you wish, um, give us some 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 in, in insight into why a project in Uganda caught your attention and how you think you add value to that process. Sure. Well, uh, thank, thanks for that. They're sort of teeing up an opportunity for me to swing for the fences in, in advertising our project. But um, so it, uh, most of your listeners probably haven't been to Uganda personally, but they may have some impression of the country. You know, Winston Churchill dubbed it the Pearl of Africa. Uganda is a spectacularly pretty country. It's not particularly large. It's located in East Africa on the, on the, the north side of Lake Victoria. It's rolling and very, very green, lots of, lots of rainfall, uh, densely populated because the soils are extremely uh, fertile. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely country. Uh, one of the great challenges the country has is in managing its municipal waste. Mm. Um, and so like many African countries, there's a lot of waste that's simply not collected. It's lying about in the street. So if you, you know, if you travel through many Ugandan cities, there's a lot of squalor to observe. And the squalor isn't necessarily directly proportional to poverty, but it is directly proportional to an inability to regularly collect waste. It's, imagine what Calgary or Toronto would look like six months into a garbage strike. Yeah. So about 40% of the waste that's generated in, in Jinja, which is the city that we have our first project in, is, is actually collected by the city. The rest is blowing around and it, it blows into the river or it gets burned informally behind people's walls, that kind of thing. Um, but the landfill is in the, in the middle of the town. It was once on the edge of town, but town has grown. And they're just dumping. They're, that's all they're doing. They're literally just adding to the mound every day. And, um, you know, we, we uh, started talking to them about waste management and proposed a energy to waste um, or waste to energy, sorry, uh, plant that is to incinerate the waste and create a little bit of power and a lot of steam. Mm. And we're very fortunate. There are industrial off takers there that would like to use the steam because it's, it's great energy for, for agricultural food processing, et cetera, et cetera. And the power is useful too, because it's right in the, the heart of the grid in the industrial area of Uganda. So we're working on a roughly $30 million project to do a, um, a waste to energy project there. Very, very pleased about the environmental aspects of it. So it'll be cleaning up the dump and it'll be reducing or eliminating all the runoff that's now going straight into the Nile, right at the source of the Nile hmm. um, and providing good employment both to some of the scavengers who are in the dump right now, uh, they'll be employed in waste sorting, um, but also in kinds of all kinds of spin-off industries dealing with recyclables, for example. There's, there's value in, in, in aluminum, there's value in, in recovered metals, et cetera, et cetera, that can all be recycled. So that'll be much better organized and, uh, and much better uh, paid for them. Now, in looking at a site as such as this or others, as you as you well uh, expressed across Africa, that you know it's a it's a problem that's not unique to this city, right? Yeah. Um, you you have an opportunity to to perhaps go on from there, but from here, when you're starting the business, how do you evaluate the the quality of the waste, the time of the waste, like what do you have to build a business around? There's a there's a garbage pile, but that garbage pile does what for you for how long? So um, when we first start looking at our project, 
we um, we we tend to look at it as bankers might. What is the potential res- revenue stream? How likely is that revenue stream? How secure is it? In what currency? Is there enough revenue that you could foresee coming out of this project to make a capital investment plausible? Hmm. And then if that is answered positively, you then unpack a hundred other questions, Chris, and I'm happy to discuss any of them, but they go into what's the quality of my local partner? What's the quality of the fuel stream, which is what you're talking about in the waste? Um, What is the cost of the technology? What is the complexity of the technology? What is the permitting regime? Uh, What are the environmental implications? What will be the social acceptability? What will be the arrangements with the municipality? And it goes on and on and on. It sounds at times a bit overwhelming, but quite literally, we put this all into a risk matrix, uh, which is a simple Excel spreadsheet where we ask ourselves, what are the things we need to make this project successful and what could be going wrong in any of those dimensions? Um, How likely is it that they would go sideways on us? Or what could we do to avoid a negative outcome? What do we need to do proactively to get to a, to a positive outcome. And that becomes one of the guiding documents as we move through the development with our partners is to say, all right, the biggest risks are, uh, you know, one, two, three, four. So, you know, for example, in the Ugandan story, we're not, a, we're not concerned that we won't be able to sell the power. We're very confident we will. We, you know, have good discussions going on with the utility. That's, that's, that's gonna come right. Um, we're still we're still a little bit further behind in terms of confirming the steam revenues, but all indications are that's coming together beautifully. But those things still become very core to our focus. Um, we have a very good handle on our, our capital costs, our engineering, procurement, and construction contract, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the the risk matrix becomes a very central tool for us. That risk matrix that ability to to look past your current site and look at other opportunities would give you potentially the title of a platform company or a platform entity. Um, LPs that may want to be looking at different types of investments um, could see you then as not a one-off in that you've got other things that you could be doing with as much detail as you wish to ex- describe what other sorts of things, uh, you know, are in your pipeline, top five, we call Chris, it. Chris, you're spot, you're spot on, Chris. And, and it's one of the reasons that we would really like to attract investment in our, what we call our hold co. Uh, so the parent company, uh, most investors want to drill state down into individual projects and make their investment at the special purpose vehicle SPV level. Uh, so that's project specific, but you're exactly right. We have a very deep projects pipeline at the moment. I don't know the exact number, but it's roughly 110, 115 projects that are on our desk Jumping. right now. A hundred. Well, they're not all active. Oh, okay. All right. Clear, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. But there's 115 things that have come to us recently that we are taking some degree of interest in, uh, where we are in some degree of discussion. And then we, we, the, the pipeline narrows down sharply when you get to privity. Privity means that I've got some legal claim on the project and the people who brought us the project cannot just suddenly wake up and take it to somebody else. So I've got some degree of control over this. So we have privity right now over about seven or eight projects. So you go from 110 to seven or eight. 
And of the seven or eight projects we have privity to, um, there are four, including the Ginger Project, where we are actually uh, investing uh, capital at this moment, where we've we made trips, we're prepared to put some money out, um, and, and we've got the ball rolling. Um, and then the others, they'll, they'll be a year or two behind, but they, they could be accelerated if we, had, if we had deeper resources. And what we think is valuable from an investor standpoint is to understand that one of the key risk mitigants we use is that we drip feed projects. So we don't, we don't put a million dollars down in one project and say, you know, have a, have a nice day guys and tell me if it works. We drip feed the project. And if the project suddenly goes sideways, we stop drip feeding them and we allocate our resources to another project. That's, that's one of the key tools we use to, um, to manage investor risk. And that tool isn't available to us when investors wanna put their money at the SPV level. Uh, so and then then you're in a then you're into a, a situation where the commitment is only to one project and you can't reallocate the resources at all. Now, are all of your projects sorry? Uh, are all of your projects um, in in the waste energy space, or you look at a variety no. of different? Energy? No, they're not. They are all renewable energy projects. So we have a number of solar projects. Okay. Uh, we have a fair number of projects that have come to us that are the that what people typically think of as the very socially desirable renewable energy projects. So these are small solar electric schemes in villages. Mm. For the most part, Chris, we haven't been very active there because we just don't see enough scale to make them economic. Um, you know, these are these are projects that are really run on a shoestring. And just recently, we were involved in one in Rwanda, for example, where we were we were the preferred bidder, and we had twenty villages. And but you add it all up, and it's less than a megawatt. And you, and I just don't know how we can, can bring the management expertise of our company to a project that after three years or four years is going to develop one megawatt of capacity. I just don't see how that works for us. Um, so most of our projects are utility scale, mm. um, but, uh, but they're certainly not all uh, waste to energy. Not, no, not at all. We have a number of small hydro schemes that we're very excited about. Uh, we think there's a tremendous potential, both in Greenfield, small runner river hydro, as well as Brownfield. There's a lot of small uh, hydro plants across Africa that, that need some, some, uh, some investment, better turbines, maybe slightly higher head. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of things that can be done to, to, uh, to improve the productivity of an existing hydro plant. And we think there's huge potential there. In your evaluation then across sub-Saharan Africa, do you have an area where you say, we see the most opportunity here for us, unique to your profile? Um, at the moment, I would say uh, it would probably be East Africa. So Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, uh, looking very lively to us right now. Okay. Um, we, have, we have some great partners that, that we like a lot in Equatorial Guinea. So we're excited about that. And, you know, when I mention Equatorial Guinea, I'm sure many people have never heard of the place, or if they look it up, they'll go, wow, what a, what a messy place. To us, the quality of the local partner uh, matters so much that, that we're prepared to look at some very challenging countries. Zimbabwe would be another example, yeah. where with really good local partners, and we have some deep relationships in the banking community, the legal community, and the engineering community in Zimbabwe, where we really trust we could put together terrific projects. Uh, where, where frankly nobody else could, and we're excited about those. Uh, we think they have real potential 
as investments, and we also think they have real social potential. So, okay, let, let's talk about challenging jurisdictions and the different instruments that are available to, to, to you and to me for investing in those places. You go, okay, we could have insurance of some kind, on, on the, whether by DFIs or others, and then there's also the whole issue of currency risk. How do you feel about both of these uh, scenarios and trying to manage your projects? Or, or is it even an issue for you? Oh, it's definitely an issue. Uh, the, the underlying challenge is you're typically having to import the core technology, whether it's your generator or your, your all the engineered goods are typically imported and they're typically priced in U.S. dollars. Uh, and then, of course, the, the local revenue stream, there's a there's a big push to make those payable in local currency. And so you're very much exposed to two things. One, that the local currency will continue its long-term trend of weakening against hard currencies. And secondly, that a variety of rules can crop up that inhibit the exchange of the, the weaker, increasingly weak local currency for US dollars. So managing those two is very central to, to what we do in, in projects. And, you know, we look for a variety of ways of doing it in Zimbabwe. Typically, you can develop projects quite successfully if you're doing them for an exporter, because you go straight to the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe and you say, look, every month the, the, the client we're working with sends, you know, let's say $50 million worth of stuff overseas. And they should notionally be required to bring that $50 million back into the country. But we want an agreement that they pay us first. And they pay us first in Hong Kong or Singapore or London or wherever they're banking. And we get paid in London in dollars uh, or in pounds or whatever uh, before, before the money goes back to Zimbabwe. And in order to make these energy investments possible, the Reserve Bank will approve those arrangements. So there are ways to do things, even in a really challenging country like Zimbabwe, you just have to roll up your sleeves, get stuck in um, and, 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 and work your way through complexity. You know, one of the things that many investors worry about is they have a perception that Africa is enormously corrupt. Um, yeah. I, I guess I'd make a couple of tempering remarks. One is, mm. uh, I don't think you, Africa is actually uniquely corrupt. I think there are many parts of the world that, that suffer that, that problem. Uh, and secondly, we have we have been very successful to date in dealing with it, and it's and it's not terribly complicated. One of the things we do is we bring it up early in a conversation uh, with government officials and counterparties, and we just make it extremely clear this is not part of our business model. Hmm. And what's really interesting yeah. is you you can you can see the response almost instantaneously. Some people perk right up and go, "Oh, I'm glad that that got cleared up, and we don't have to worry about that." And other people get all discouraged because they were waiting for a big thumping payout. The useful thing there is at least you know right off who you can who you could be wasting your time with and who wants to work with you. In a couple of instances where we've been sort of held hostage by people who are clearly looking for an illicit payoff, we've done all kinds of different things. But most recently, for example, mm. we invited the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service to come to one of our meetings and just observe. They just they were invited to merely sit in the room. And we had a full discussion about, you know, the demands for, for payments yeah. with a Canadian government official who'd made the effort to travel by plane to sit in this meeting. And that cleared it up because we made it very clear. We will escalate to the state president. We will raise this issue. The Canadian government is sitting in our corner. Do we have an option to move forward here or have we hit a roadblock? 
and we got through the roadblock. And we will continue to operate that way. Um, and, and it's not because we want to be the Dudley Do-Rights who, who would never want to work with somebody who's looking for a payoff, but it's we actually believe that corruption undermines Africa fundamentally. It undermines anywhere fundamentally. And there's no point doing a project if you leave the community weaker and more disorganized and, and, and less accountable than you found it in the first place. So that's just not, not what we're here to do. Uh, that's, that's um, a ref- again, a refreshing discussion that it's being had here on, on, on a public you know, forum to say, these are ways that we can deal with it. These are the things that can be dealt with and yeah. let's deal with it. So I, I, it's very refreshing. Thank you. Thank you for um, not shying away from the discussion because many do. They often just say, oh, we deal with it. Don't worry about it. You know, that kind of approach. Right. And so. Yeah. And, you, and one has to wonder sometimes and if that means we have an agent who deals with that for us. Right? Right. We just the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yes, we pay people off, but it, we don't do it directly. So we're, we, we have deniability yeah. that that to us just doesn't work. You know, we we would never want our local partner engaged in that kind of behavior. As I said at the outset, we want to leave them stronger and more capable. Uh, and secondly, we don't want governments uh, to to be taking illicit payments from our projects because it never stops. It never stops. And they are your long if, if you're building an energy project, government is your long term collaborator in one form or another for decades ahead. Um, so you might as well have a trusting and straightforward and honest relationship, one that will withstand a change of government, for example. And the only way to do that is to be to be forthright and honest. So you brought up an interesting um, starting point for the next discussion is to say, government is your long-term partner. So a lot of people, in, in my experiences, look at utilities in Africa as a short-term win. How many kilowatts, how many megawatts, unless you're doing Inga or Gerd Dam type stuff, it's all about, oh, I've gone from one to 10, 10 to 20. They're, they're small numbers that ultimately mean smaller projects that in, in, in the next in line in discussion say, have a very hard time attracting capital because the minimum capital commitments for a lot of institutions and frankly DFIs is a lot bigger, yeah. you know? And so it becomes, in a long-term view, with projects that are smaller, with the volume of projects you have, what is your view for what utilities could be or need to be in Africa? Are they still state? Do they, does a private need to come in? What's your view, long-term view for utilities, the energy um, utility? Yeah, sure. So, look, my own my own personal view is that there's an enormous synergy between private capital and state utilities, and that different countries um, should explore how to bring private capital into their own utilities, whether they're generation utilities, transmission companies, or distribution companies. I think there's a, there's a terrific benefit to bring the, the discipline, the technical innovation, uh, the, the, the cost savings of scale, for example, of a private operator into a state-owned utility. But at the same time, those private operators understand fully that they're subject to regulation. 
and that regulation has to be aligned with the objectives of government policy. So, you know, it's going to look different in a country like Ethiopia, where you're trying to develop GERD and you're trying to develop a network that, that will span multiple countries around you and you're trying to do things on a huge scale and you've got very low rates of electricity penetration or countries like Uganda, where you've got lots of generation capacity relative to today's load, but you've got a settlement pattern that doesn't allow for any density. I mean, Uganda's soil is so fertile that everybody lives everywhere. So it's, there almost are no towns, I'm exaggerating slightly, but the countryside is covered in people living on very small plots of land and, and, and making a decent living, growing things on very small plots. So the density just isn't there. So distribution is a challenge. So if you own a, if you're part of an investor in a utility in Uganda, you've got to play into that agenda somehow. You've got to find, you've got to help the government figure out how do we electrify Uganda so that the settlement pattern of today doesn't become a hindrance to the economic participation of everybody tomorrow. Mm. I mean, in a country like that, how do you get the internet to everybody? How do you improve education outcomes in, in rural areas when people live in such a dispersed pattern? That's in part something the, the utilities have to, to, to struggle with. What kind of technology is that? What kind of pricing model is that? How fast can that be achieved? You know, what, what kind of generation do we want? Do we want small dispersed plants or large central ones? I mean, those are, the, those are planning and policy issues, but, um, but I, think, I think there's much that, that private investors can bring to those, those scenarios. And so from your company's objectives and on, on a near term and ultimately a long term, where do you ideally want to position yourself? If you said, uh, I, got, I have a, a crystal ball in five years, I'm this in 10 years, I'm that what, what it may be even 20 after that. What, what do you see that progression looking like? Um, Look, so at the moment we can we can do two or three projects simultaneously and that's that's stretching our resources. Um, we would like to be capitalized so that we can bring roughly two new projects into the hopper every year. The typical project development is three years, four years, that kind of thing. So that at any one moment, the company would probably be dealing with five or six projects uh, and that we're you know, five years out, we are starting to mature projects that are going into construction, that are going into commercial operations. And at that point, we would seek to recycle our capital, meaning we'll sell the project to long-term investors who want de-risked assets in a steady cash stream. And we'll say, fantastic, take this asset off our hands. And the premium we've, we've collected for making that possible for them would be recycled back into projects development elsewhere. So, um, an optimal uh, group for us would probably be uh, exactly like I said, bringing roughly two projects on every year with projects typically taking three to five years to be fully developed. So you've got five or six projects under development at any one time. You probably need a, a team of around 20 people to do that. Uh, and you need a few million dollars in the tank to keep that running for five years before you see your first exit. Now, I think if we demonstrate after two, three years that we are very successful at this, and we've been delivering that already uh, without the resources, I think investors would look at us and say, hey, you're doing five or six projects, but you're doing it at a continent of over a billion people with huge needs. Could you do three, four, five, ten times more? 
And at some point, there's a quantum leap there in terms of becoming far more structured and corporate and so forth. But that really is a question of, of resources. I think we have the approach. I think we have the, a lot of the key leadership. I think we have the values. Uh, I think we have the local relationships. So we could scale this up. Do you see others that are at that point yet? You know, this is such a difficult sector, right? Yes, there are there are a couple of others. There's some there's some there's some wonderful developers around Africa. Most of them are bootstrapping it. Uh, they've typically had one or two projects that they've seen over over the, the the hurdles, and they're they're replicating that with projects two, three, four. Um, you would think that the DFIs would be doing all they can to help those developers. But, you know, over the, the past four years, I've grown increasingly cynical. That's a difficult sector to deal with. They're, you know, they're really not focused on how to make small private sector developers successful. They're really very interested in, in, in making announcements about program targets um, and, 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 and dealing with large corporate, corporate entities. Um, when we are approached by DFIs, and honestly, Chris, I've dealt with, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 over the last four years, we, we typically ask early, so could you maybe give us a reference of someone you financed in the past that we could talk to so we understand how this journey will feel for us? And usually you get crickets. Hmm. You know, there's, there's like, there are not a lot of developers in our, in our area, what even in agriculture or transportation or water supply or whatever, I'm not saying they have to be energy people, um, who, who the DFIs can point to and say, Hey, we, we got those people started. Interesting. Because again, it comes to, to that whole problem of smaller developers and the majority of the projects right now are smaller projects. There isn't the capital flowing to GERD dams and Inga dams in the in that type of volume to your sector. It's just not happening when that's the majority of the projects. That's where the, that's where the need is too, right? I mean, the, um, the South Africans have done a terrific job with the Renewable Energy IPP program, mm, um, yeah. you know, getting the costs of, of, of solar and wind power way down. In fact, people are bidding now in that program at below the cost of supplying. And that you'd think that makes no sense, but they're betting that the cost of solar panels will continue to come down. And that's in, and if that bet is wrong, they don't have a margin in the project. So it's really interesting. But that's the kind of game that can only be played by very large players with big balance sheets who are prepared to take, you know, $500 million risks. Yeah, yeah. That, that does not describe people like us, right, who are bootstrapping our way across the continent uh, with a different set of objectives. We're never going to seek to be doing billion-dollar projects. Let the big players of the world, the big utilities and the big energy companies of the world, let them have those projects. What we think is really missing is that middle piece that takes uh, entrepreneurial, innovative, energetic Africans with, with good ideas and gives them a platform from which they can make uh, uh, projects happen that have effect in their own communities. I, I think that last statement is, can, can we frame that? You know, I, I, I'm going to take, you know, put a quote at the beginning of that quote at the end of it and, you know, send it to um, you and everybody else who wants to be involved in this space because that is a great, great summary, right? It, it's about 
Africans being responsible for their own growth and us being partners in that growth with them. That's yeah. And I, I know you there's. Know Go ahead, if go. many of your listeners don't know Africa, they should do something like go do a safari in, in Kenya and go to one of the conservancies. And these are these are privately run safari parks that are adjacent to the Mara, the Serengeti Park, and they have no fence between them. So you're on a private land, the same animals that are roaming the vast big park walk in and out of this private area, but on the private area is run by the locals only. And you just, the pride and the excitement of the of everyone you meet there, that you have come from Canada or US or Europe or wherever you come from, and you've come to visit their village and their area, they are so proud of it. And that's precisely the pride we feel that's palpable in our projects. People, you know, drag us to their villages to say, if you come to my village, I'll show you that there's a river there that needs a dam and a power plant, or I'll show you a waste, a waste uh, uh, landfill site that, that would benefit so much from using that fuel to generate some power and steam. And, and the, the commitment of the local people to, to making a difference in their own communities is, is just, it's priceless. You, you can't buy that. That's, 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 that's an amazing resource. Absolutely. Um, ingenuity and human drive, you know, will make anything happen. And somehow um, you have traveled between continents, have had your foot in the energy sector in its rainbow of colors um, over 40 years. And continue to move forward and there is a fabulous we'll call it a sense of a passing of baton that you have that you want to 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 create out, out of this um call it next stage in your journey to say look look what africa has given me how can i give back and how can i empower you to move forward it's most encouraging yeah well thank you we you know it's just uh, a lot of people will tell you if you work in Africa, it's not always easy, but Africa gets in your blood. And after a while, you become passionate about it. And you go, I could make a difference here. You know, my life could have meaning if I do these things. And, and we, we do them commercially, not so much because we're greedy and hope to get fabulously wealthy, but because the logic of commercial business is so compelling and gives you such a clear metric against which to make your decisions that without it, I don't know how we operate. So we make decisions that are commercially sound, uh, but we make them because we believe that they're actually going to improve the world around us. Robert, I, I, I want to give you um, the, the final word here and a chance to to say what it is that is 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 important to you about right now. What is important to your growth and your company, and your future? What, what is it about right now that you want to close us off with? Well, thanks, because I guess, you know, you and I have discussed this a few times before. Our, our greatest screaming need is for an investor who has the confidence in, in us uh, and the alignment of vision to give us the resources to make this happen. Uh, on the bootstring uh, approach we're, we're at now, this could take decades to, to get to, uh, to results. And frankly, Africa doesn't, doesn't need to wait decades. We need a, a few million bucks to make this happen. Um, 
And in a world awash in capital at low to even negative interest rates, you would think that where the, the, the social and an environmental need is so great, you could find some resources, but it hasn't proven that's the case. Um, for a variety of institutional reasons, the capital just isn't there for uh, project development in Africa. It just isn't there. So our greatest need far and away is to have an investor who says, you know what, I think if we put 10 or 20 million bucks in this company, that a decade from now, we would look back and go, wow, that's done extremely well. That company is now worth multiples of what we put in it. And, uh, and it's achieved its, its project results. It's de-risked itself. There's no longer the risky company that it was when we put the money in, but it's also worth a lot more. And, and I'm very, I'm supremely confident we can achieve that. The difficulty is finding an investor who's who's got money earmarked to do something like this. Well, Robert, thank you for for opening up in the way that you have today. I think you've been very um, forthright in a lot of your views of of doing business in Africa and your successes and failures in Africa. And so I, I you know, I've benefited greatly from this discussion more than you know. Um, it's added to the, some of the things that we've talked about many times in the past and I have gotten more out of it and hopefully others have as well. So thank you. And, uh, I look forward to chat with you again soon. We'll make sure that in the show notes, um, all of your, um, uh, website contact details, social media, and your details are available so that people can reach out to you. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can make things better in Africa, you know, just by somebody listening today. So we'll go from there. Well, Chris, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm touched that you'd make it available to us and I'm very excited uh, for, for what you're trying to do as well. I think you're a, a very key part of this, uh, this picture. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energy and Africa. I'm your host, Chris McLean. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address stonechaircapital.com to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on all your social platforms. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts and videos. Check us out on Twitter and LinkedIn. Details are all on the show notes. Join us next time for another edition of Energy and Africa.